Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me to the book of Joshua, and I would just like to read as a point of reference. I'm not going to be dealing uh, in extent with this chapter, but as a point of reference, this uh, first chapter of uh, the book of Joshua. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Great line. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. We grab onto that. Or else, that passage, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But the heart of it is, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Which takes us back to the title, Emmanuel. God with us. Everything hangs there. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, Go through the camp and tell the people, Get your supplies ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan, here to go in and take possession of the land your God is giving you for your own. For your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you. And until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them, after that you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. 
whoever rebels against your word and does not obey your words, whatever you you may command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Pray with me a moment. Father, thank you for your word. No greater treasure that you have given to us. We pray that you will open it to us. You're the one who alone can open it to us to where we see. Let us today hear and let us see. And let us walk in the light of what we see and we will give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that uh, I've come to love more and more about the Bible as I work with it is the unity of the whole thing. It's one book. It may have 66 sections in it and it may have two, an Old Testament and a New Testament. But it's one book and you can't explain any part of it or understand any part of it if you separate it from the rest. And uh, what we have here is a story that comes in the middle of the story. So in order to understand this section of the story, we got to know what went before. And it helps if we know something of what is to come afterwards. But the key in all of this whole story is, I think you can write it in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And he loved the world enough that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think it's difficult for us to understand how much he loves us. In recent years, I have found myself wanting to say to people, he likes you. (laughs) Because the word love is such an official word that it's meaningless anymore. And so a preacher is supposed to say God loves you. But the shocking thing is he likes you. In fact, he likes you enough he wants to have a friendship with you. And he likes you enough and wants to have a friendship with you enough that he will pursue you in order to get it. He's not sitting up there in isolated love, you know, willing to love you if you come along. He's out looking for you and for me so he can have relationship with us. And the relationship that he wants with us is expressed in that word, Emmanuel, God with us. You know, it's interesting how... uh, in the early church, the before Augustine came along and sort of set an in control over how we think, some of those early fathers who lived before Augustine, who were they were in the glory of the early days of the Christian church, they were totally awed by who Christ was. The systematic theology hadn't been all worked out yet, and because it hadn't been all worked out, they thought all sorts of things. And one of those fathers began to say, you know, I believe that if Adam had never sinned, the incarnation would have taken place anyway. I don't know whether you've ever thought about that or not, but the older I get and the longer I live, the more I think if that could have been completely possible. Because if you're thinking about God's concern about his creatures, his people, you and me, he cares enough about us that he wants to be one with us. And so if we had never sinned, I think he would, the second person of the blessed trinity, would have come down to be Emmanuel, God with us. And you can't have Emmanuel in the true sense of the term until he's become one of us. God likes us. God wants us. Astounding. People like you, people like me, people like you take the worst person you can think of. God likes him and he wants him and seeks him and he goes after him. Okay. But now this relationship of liking I remember we had in one of the first uh, Asbury Summer Assemblies that we had, and but we had an evangelist and his associate who came from Oregon. And uh, he, he, I remember he was a graduate of Christian college, 
Uh, he uh, was a fervent evangelist, worked with Billy Graham a good bit, and most of his work, though, in the Northwest, in Oregon and Washington, in that area, California. But uh, I mentioned this in the course of one of my Bible studies in the thing. Every time I ever see him, he says, you know, life turned over for me at that point and became different. When the thought came home to me, now here's the preacher of the gospel. He said, when the thought came home to me that the eternal God likes me <laughs> and wants to have communion with me. But now that relationship is not reciprocal because if there's anything that the scripture indicates and if there's anything that human history indicates it is, we don't like him. <laughs> and we're not interested in liking him and we're not interested in friendship with him. In fact, we want to get him as far from us as we can get as long as we're safe. And so the only reason we permit him in our lives is, is for safety's sake. But we really don't like him. There's something about us that we we find we we like distance between us and him. Now uh, that's clear from what you get in the story of Joshua, because what you have here is you will remember that God called Abraham. Abraham followed him, and then his family grew. And you remember they went down into Egypt. You get the Joseph story, and then 400 years later you get Moses. And uh, Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then they come through the wilderness and through the desert. They come to the backside of Canaan and they're ready to go in to, for God to keep his promise to the children of Abraham that he will give them some real estate in this world. Now, you know, I, I, I was so familiar with that that I missed the radical character of that. It's, you know, it's interesting that the eternal God Likes, would like a little corner of real estate in his own world. You know how I felt from coming from a liberal background? Here, these Hebrews coming in and stealing other people's property. Taking Canaan. That's, what, that's the kind of background, mental, mental background I had when I first came to this story, you know. Who are these, what's this business of God selecting one nation to give them a chunk of real estate and steal it away from the people who've got it already before? But now, wait a minute. Who, who's the main actor here? Main character here is not Joshua. The main character here is not Israel. The main character here is the eternal God. Amen. And what is it that the eternal God wants? He just simply wants a little corner of turf in his own world. Now, doesn't he deserve a right to have a corner of turf in his own world? Just a little, little, little foothold in his own world? Now, the thing I've come to think about and the way to conceive it is that what he's after is a foothold because he had lost his foothold. He had no real estate in this world and he had no foothold. He not only wants a little real estate, but he wants a people and he wants a foothold in, in, in a place and in a people. Why? so he can let this world down here that doesn't like him know that he likes them. And God is in an incredible box, and we've put him in it, and he's trying to get out of that box, and trying to get out of it, not for his sake. He has nothing to gain by it. He doesn't need us, but he, has, he, he, he wants to get out of that box for my sake because he sees me in my need, in my lostness, in my loneliness, in my frustration, in my meaninglessness. He sees me grasp, made for something bigger than what I know, bigger than what I am, made for something more meaningful than what I'm putting my life into, and I'm frustrated, and he wants to, he's got the answer to it. 
he'd like to come down and just give me the answer that I'm looking for, and I don't know that's what I'm looking for. Okay. Now, that's God's problem. Now, it's an old story, isn't it? Because this is not the first time God's been this way. Because if you go back and read Genesis, you'll find that when you get to the sixth chapter of Genesis, he has created the world, everything is in place, everything is in order, it's a good world, but man has now shut God out and shut him out to the extent that in chapter 6 of Genesis it says, and the thoughts and imaginations of men's hearts were evil and evil only. Now what that means is they had no time for God, no place for God, and no interest in God. They were only interested in themselves. And so God says, what I planned for this world is all wrong. It isn't working, so I'll have to start over. So he cleaned house and started over. But he wasn't too successful at that either, was he? Because you remember before the ground got dry, Noah was drunk and profanation of holy things was taking place. And you will remember that you get to chapter 11 and you get the Tower of Babel. And what you have is the leadership of the world saying, we'll build a tower that reaches up to heaven and we'll make a name for ourselves. Now, you'll notice there's not a reference to God in that. It is man without God, and man going to build his world without God. <laughs> you know, when I come to that, <laughs> I remember, I think I've been to the United Nations twice in my life. One of them was back in the 50s, and the other one probably late 50s or early 60s. When I went the first time, I found out that I was pleasantly surprised that they have a meditation room in the United Nations. Now, you know, it was a concession to the religious people of the world and a concession to the religions of the world. But what's the United Nations going to put in a meditation room? <laughs> so when I was there, they had a central object. And when I looked at it, I was fascinated. It was a piece of a tree that had been cut off. It was about this big around. And it was petrified and highly polished. It was a beautiful thing. Listen, you know. And that was the central object in the meditation room. <laughs> you know, all I could think about was Isaiah when he said, man goes out in the woods, cuts a tree down with half of the tree. He cooks his meal and feeds his family. And with the other half, he makes a, a, an object for his meditation room. <laughs> Now, the next time I went to the United Nations, they'd taken that block away. You know what they had in its place? They had an odd, oblong-shaped piece of, mar of, of granite, and there it was. Now, it's interesting, when we lose God, do you know what we turn to? We turn to the creation. When you turn your back on the creator, you go for the creation, and you try to make the creation take the place of the creator, and the creation can't take the place of the creator because the creation needs the creator. And yet when the crea creation rejects the creator, the creator loves the creation enough he refuses to be rejected and keeps banging on our door and looking for a way to save us. Now that's the story that you've got, and that was the reason he called Abraham. So he said with Abraham, I can't start, I won't start, I'll start with one person or with a couple. Sometimes we tend to forget it was Abraham and Sarah started with a couple and from which came a family and then a people developed. Now, uh, you will remember that uh, uh, that family went down into Egypt 
and became uh, a people, but not a political entity, not a nation. Moses came along and has brought them out, and now God wants some real estate and a nation. Now, why does he want them? So that that can be the platform from which the knowledge of God can go to the ends of the earth. You don't have to wait until the end of Matthew to get the Great Commission. You don't have to wait till the New Testament to get missions. There's not a line in Genesis that is not, uh, does not assume the Great Commission. And when you come to this, why does God want a foothold and why does he want a people? He says, I want a people that will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And a kingdom of priests is a kingdom that doesn't live for itself because a priest does not serve himself. A priest is there to serve other people. And he's, he's looking for a nation that will be the means of serving all the nations of the earth so all the nations of the earth can know God. And it is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And a holy nation lets you know it's supposed to be like him because he's the holy one, as we sang. Thank you for doing that. Uh, he's the holy one, and this people is supposed to be a reflection of him so that when his people are there, they, the, the rest of the world can see him. And the incredible thing to me is that you get to the New Testament and we're told, Jesus tells his disciples, if you're there, I'm there. And if they've met you, they've met me. And if they reject you, they've missed me. Which means that God is looking for a people that will stand in his place, in his world, so his world can know him. And my function, my chief reason for existing is so God can shine through me to a world. And the astounding thing is, whenever that ever happens, that's the most fulfilling thing that a human spirit can ever, ever know. Do I have to labor that with this crowd? I don't think I have to labor that. It's interesting to get old. As you look back, the most the things you place, you find the greatest joy in is the thought that somewhere, somehow, somehow, God used you so somebody else could come to know Him. That it means more than anything else in the world. I was in a, I got a phone call from. I'm on the board of OMS International and. I got a phone call from the president, and he said he had brought in a consultant on structure, a man who uh, had been in the business world, was very successful, and when he was in his early 50s, he retired to give the rest of his life to Christian service. So he's the top man, he's the second man in a major mission organization, the Greater Europe Mission, and in this country with working in Europe. The fellow who was the president a previous president to the one that's there now was the roommate of Billy Graham when he was at Wheaton. But uh, uh, he said, now, you haven't met him, Dennis, and I'd like for you to meet him before the board meeting begins. So I found myself at 7 o'clock in the morning sitting down for breakfast with a person I'd never met. We, <laughs> we sat down, and a pleasant-looking, graying-haired fellow in his, in his late 50s, uh, obviously a very competent person. His opening line as we sat down was he looked across at me and said, okay, the first question that has to be answered before we go any further today is this one. Where were you on the 27th of July in 1967 and what were you doing? And I stared in unbelief at the guy. We're here for a business meeting. And I, I blinked at him. He said, that's it. That's the first question. It has to be answered. Where were you on the 27th of July, 
1967, and what were you doing? I thought, for heaven's sake, I don't know what I did last week. And I thought, July, that's summertime. I had a pattern back in those days. I said, preaching? Yeah. Where? Camp meeting? Yeah. I mentioned one. He said, oh, no. He said, I'll give you the state. He gave me the state. And I said, oh, no. The scroungiest, dirtiest little camp meeting you've ever seen. Outdoor plumbing, the whole shooting match, you know. I was in it. So I thought, what's this? Well, he said, very interesting. He said, there was a young fellow in that area who had just been converted, just found Christ. Very zealous. And he had a brother who was unsaved. And he was working on his brother and working hard. He said, you've got to be born again. And he was hammering him with, you've got to be born again. His brother, he didn't have any interest in that kind of stuff. And uh, he uh, said, uh, his, the brother that had was born again kept pounding away. And finally he said, they've got a camp meeting out here. You've got to go with me to that camp meeting. This kid, the last place in the world he wanted to go was a camp meeting. So he said, I finally, the guy finally decided, told him he'd go the last Friday night, or Saturday night, it was Friday night. He said, I thought if I went the last Friday night, I could go once and wouldn't ever have to go back. So he said, they walked in the tabernacle, sat down, and he said, you stood up and read from John 3 and preached on, you must be born again. He said, that started a conversation. It lasted until 3 o'clock in the morning with these two brothers. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, that boy who was unsaved found Christ. And the guy sitting across the desk from him said, I work for him. He's the president of the Greater Europe Mission. Now, I, I wish I could explain to you what kind of preacher I was back in those days. Ask Bob and Mary Alice. <laughs> the astounding thing is that God uses anybody he can find. And you never know the fruit that's coming from it. But if you get a glimmer of it, you say, man, that's worth living for. Because it is in God that we find our fulfillment and in God alone. And God knows that. And he's pulling every string he can pull to get into you and me so we can be find find what we were created for and find that fulfillment because our fulfillment's in him. Okay. When you come to Joshua, it's a new start. He's now getting a foothold in his world and he's got a people. Now, it's interesting what that people is built around. It's a pretty good-sized uh, nation, these thousands that came out of Egypt. But do you know what the heart of it is and what made it all possible to human being because they wouldn't be here there would be no continuity if it weren't for Caleb and Joshua because you remember that story when just uh, not too many weeks after they had come out of Egypt you read the story in Numbers they came to where they were close enough to the land of Canaan the promised land that Joshua, God said, pick out one man from each tribe and send them in to spy out the land. And they went in. And when they spied out the land, they came back and they said, man, it's rich country. 
It's a country that flows with milk and honey. And they brought back the grapes of Eshkol, you remember, so delicious. And uh, they said, Joshua said, okay. And the people said, what shall we do? And 10 of them said, but they got giants up there. They're bigger than we are. They're better prepared militarily. Their defenses are rugged. Uh, we'll never take it. We'll be defeated. And so we dare not go up. And Caleb and Joshua tore their clothes and said, oh, no, oh, no. God is Emmanuel. God is with us. And because God is with us, we can take that territory. And so they did their best. And the people said, no, we're scared. And so the people backed away. And so God said, finally, he said, because this people do not believe, uh, they will die in the wilderness. But Caleb, you and Joshua, you will see the land of promise. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? When you've got thousands of people, but there are only two that are a part of the future. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd like to be a part of the future. I'd hate to think that when I come to the end of my days, that's the end of all of it, and it's useless. You remember the story of the kid playing on the seashore? Vacation time, building his building his medieval city with his castle and moat around it and all the rest. And he's uh, lost in it, forgotten all track of time. And the sun set and the darkness is coming and suddenly hears a voice calling, Billy! And he looks up and it's his brother on the bluff that says, Supper time, mother's call. And as he looks at his brother, he doesn't realize the, the tide has come in and just as he turns, there's a big wave that comes and it sweeps across everything he spent his afternoon doing. And you know how one wave can wipe out a sand pile? And it's all gone. Now there's something inside you that says I'm made for something eternal. There's something inside me that says I want to be a part of something that counts. Now, uh, I've learned that... Uh, the Gallup polls never tell you about the future. They only tell you really about the present and the past, and more about the past than they do the present, because there are forces at work that the Gallup poll simply reflects what people have felt and doesn't tell you about any of the new currents moving. I remember at Brandeis, the interpreter's Bible had just been uh, uh, published. And uh, Walter Cronkite spent the most of one evening on national TV telling what a glorious thing this was, that this great uh, publishing venture had been completed, the Interpreter's Bible, that was to give us new understanding of biblical truth. I was at Brandeis working under an old Jew, and we were eating judges. So I'd take my, I'd take my Interpreter's Bible volume and study it hard, you know, and get all the higher criticism in it and go into class and I'd feed that to this old Jew. And after I'd done that about four or five times one day, he turned to me, his face turned red, and he said, Kinlaw, quit beating that dead horse. I said, dead horse? He said, yes, quit beating that dead horse. I said, what do you mean dead? It is the latest thing out. 
he said, yes, and it's 40 years out of date already. Quit beating that dead horse. Now, uh, I, uh, I thought of that today as I was thinking about this. What is the key to the future? It's not in numbers. <laughs> uh, if you had taken a Gallup poll in 2,000 years ago, you know what we date 2KY by? Nobody would have talked about Nazareth or Bethlehem. But the incredible thing is, if you know God, it doesn't matter how many there are, you're a part of the future. When you know him and when you walk with him, because he's in sovereign control of it, and if you stick close to him, you can be a part of the future. And when you get that, and when you know that, you quit taking polls. And that's freedom. That's freedom, brother. It's freedom in the intellectual world. It's freedom. Do you understand that? Because the intellectual world tends to go by who's the brightest, the latest, and you know what Harvard has to say in Yale and Oxford and Cambridge, and they can be as dead wrong as anybody else. All you got to do is read history. That's the way the politicians live. That's the way we live. The country club lives. You can just keep on going. We live by polls. And we have a genius for taking a poll subconsciously. And then we act on the poll we've taken subconsciously. But God needs to free us from the poll-taking business and get us sensitive to his presence, where he is, what he's about, what he's doing. Hook into it. And when it's over with, you can look back and say, for heaven's sakes, I've been a part of something bigger than I ever anticipated and far more important, and you're a part of what is eternally, what eternally counts. Okay. Uh, now, what marked these two guys that made them so significant? They believed. They believed. They trusted. Now, I'd like to use two words. I'd like to say they believed and they trusted. And for a minute, I'd like to split those two words. Now, biblically, the two words have to go together. And if you believe, you should trust. And if you trust, you obviously believe. But there's a connotation in English. You don't have this. Uh, in some languages, but you do have it in the Old Testament. You've got a word for believe and you've got a word for trust. And the word for trust is a more personal word. Basic idea is you lean on a guy. And uh, so let me separate belief and, and trust at this point. And when I talk about belief, I talk, I'm talking about truth. Because the future is, there is no future separated from truth. Uh, so first is, and truth is something you believe. And the thing about it is, biblically, that truth is summed up in a person. And a person is one whom you either trust or you don't. So there is a body of truth. We speak about theology. There's a body of truth that needs to be believed. And if that truth, if you don't believe that right, it will affect everything else. That's the importance of, of, of sound theology and of orthodoxy. William Temple was an, an, an Anglican uh, archbishop. He was Archbishop of Canterbury, head of the Anglican Church. And his famous line from him says, if your concept of God is wrong, the more religion you get, the more dangerous you are to yourself and to other people. That's a great quotation. If your concept of God is wrong, the more religious you are, the more dangerous you are to yourself and to other people. 
And uh, that's the reason for the importance of the truth, that we know the truth. And that's the reason he's give us, given us the word, and that's the reason we need to know it and understand it, the truth. Because if, it, if, if we think wrong, our, our relationship will be wrong. Take my evangelist friend who was shocked with the thought that God loved him. He could preach the fear of God into people, but uh, that, that God liked him. But his concept of God didn't, didn't permit that. And when it did, it's interesting, I still get notes of appreciation from him for that. Okay, so the first thing is truth about God. And the truth is that it's safe to trust him. <laughs> the truth is that it's safe to trust him. And when we see that, then there's a chance, but you've got to make a decision about it. You've got to decide to trust him when you see the truth. Now, how did they come to faith? It seems to me that biblically there are two elements in what brought Joshua and Caleb to faith. The background for both of them is in the life of, of Moses. So let me talk about Moses for just a minute. At the burning bush, and here's uh, an interesting thing, uh, which this may be, a, this may seem a little off the wall to you, but stick with me a minute because I think it's significant. When Moses saw the bush burn and stopped to look and realized it was not being consumed because the fire of God is not destructive to anything good. Fire of God is only cleansing to anything that's good. So it didn't consume the bush. It may terrify you, but uh, if you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, the fire of God's not going to not going to not going to sear your burn you. but anyway the bush was not consumed he stared and suddenly a voice comes out of the bush now I, I cannot overemphasize that the god we're dealing with has a voice and can talk and he can talk our language and he says moses take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground and uh, then began this conversation between Moses and God. And Mo God says, I want you to go see Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Now, here's an interesting thing. You know, I missed it for years. He says, tell Pharaoh to let my son go. And if he doesn't let my son go, I'll take care of his son. Do you know that's in the first conversation with Moses? That is the beginning of the concept of the fatherhood of God in the Bible. I think it's the first place where you get it. It's Moses who uses the term father for God first in Deuteronomy. But in this passage, God says to Moses, tell Pharaoh if he doesn't let my son go, I'll take care of his son. It'll be son for son. Because Israel is the firstborn of God. Now, could I hold you here for a minute? Isn't that an interesting expression, the firstborn? Now, you know how we think of that? You know how I thought about this for years? The firstborn, you know, gets a double portion. I'm thinking of the inheritance. So I think, well, if I were in a family that were wealthy and it lived in those days, I'd want to be the firstborn. So I've got twice as much money or twice as much uh, possessions as the other guy. But the interesting thing is that the firstborn is responsible for all the rest of the born <laughs> in that world. So it's not nice, quite as neat as we think it is. 
But do you know what it means when it says the firstborn, Israel is the firstborn? Because God wants some other children. In fact, he liked the Egyptians for his children. I've got to develop a completely different understanding of the interaction between, between God and Moses and Pharaoh. If Pharaoh had ever given God a moment's chance, Pharaoh would have been a saved man. Don't let anybody kid you. He'd have been a saved man. And God did everything he could do to convince Pharaoh. You read that story and read it and notice one thing. What is God after? God is after only one thing. He says, I want Pharaoh to know that I am the Lord. That's all he wanted. I want Pharaoh to know that I am the Lord. Now that's interesting. Notice it's first person. He doesn't say I want Pharaoh to know that there is a God. He says I want Pharaoh to know that I am the Lord. An interpersonal relationship. And he says I want him to know. But the interesting thing is the word Lord is not Lord in Hebrew. It's a personal name of God, Yahweh. I want Israel, I want Egypt, I want Pharaoh to know that I am Yahweh. And who is Yahweh? Now there are two things that are said about him. One of them is, he is the I am. I don't know how to say that well enough. But that's, that's, that's where you deal with theology. He's the I am. And who is the I am? He's the only one who can say I am. I can say I am, but the sentence isn't finished. I am, and why am I? I am because he gives me life. He just gave me a breath. <laughs> he just let my heart beat. <laughs> I am because he is. But he's the one who is, and that's it. I am. You remember when the Jews were pushing Jesus? And uh, they said... You talk about Abraham, we're the children of Abraham. And he said, uh, before Abraham was, I am. The next breath you get will come from him. He is, he is the ultimate. Now, it's interesting what happens in translation. You see, he says, I am the I am. I am Yahweh, personal. It's a personal relationship that he's after. But... Uh, when the Septuagint translated it, the Septuagint translated basically with an expression saying he is the one who is. And you know when you say he is the one who is, you put it into him, him into the third person. And do you know what all religion does with God except Christianity? It slides God into the third person. We talk about him. What you've got here is God wants Pharaoh to talk him. God is saying to Pharaoh, you're going to meet me, shouldn't you talk to me before you get here? You know, that's all God is after. He is after to get us to where we know he exists. He is there and we, we respond to him. Now, so you get, first of all, God says to Moses, I'm the I am. He's the one who is. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one who is. And that cannot be said of any other creature in existence. Everything else is dependent upon his isness. 
his amnesty or whatever you want to say. Now, so he says, this is who I am. I'm God. There is no other God. There is nobody else. I'm it and it alone. I'm he and he alone. Okay. Now he says, and I'm the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. I'm the one who appeared to Abraham and called him, and Abraham responded. I, I wish I wish I were smart enough and bright enough to do to deal with that with some kind of justice. Because you know what he's saying? He's the one who is, but he is the one who is involved in human history, and he cannot separate those two things. You cannot find the God of Scripture where he is not the ultimate, absolute, unchangeable, eternal one, but he's right down in the middle of wherever you are, and he's at work. Right down in the middle, he is the God of history. And so you find him in the most unexpected places. In fact, if you've got eyes to see, you'll find him everywhere. <laughs> because uh, heaven and earth are full of thee. <laughs> heaven and earth are praising thee. That's true. Heaven and earth are full of him. We don't see him, but he's, but, he, but he's there. Okay. Now, so there's that, uh, the isness of God, but now the character of God, he's there. What do I do with him? Do I run from him or do I run to him? And the big question is, is he trustworthy? Can I trust him? And you see, trust is a personal relationship. Now, you know, they had a lot of reasons why they ought to trust him. Let me, uh, let me just go through a list of why they had the data they had. Uh, they'd seen the transformation in Moses. Because do you know who the Pharaoh was? He was the most powerful man in the world, and Egypt was the center of human existence at that time. Now, who is it that's trying to get the attention of the most powerful, the central figure in human history? The God who runs old shooting matches. <laughs> it seems to me there's something logical about the God who runs the whole shooting match getting the attention of the guy who's running his world. And so, you get this interaction. Okay, they'd seen the change in Moses. That's a miracle, the change in Moses. From a sheep herder to this guy. They'd seen, uh, they knew about what Moses, what happened to Moses. You remember when his rod turned into a snake? And you remember when his hand became leprous? And a bush that burned and was not consumed? These Hebrews, Joshua knew all about that. And Caleb did, Joshua was Moses' assistant. They knew about Aaron's rod. They knew about the plagues. Water turned into blood, frogs and everything, gnats and everything, flies and everything. Plague on the livestock so they died. It's interesting, if we had time, how the Pharaoh, when that starts, he turns to his magician. So what you've got is one religious figure against another religious figure. And it's, it's, it's Moses' religion against Egyptian religion, see. When you get down to it, you can't remember at the moment, but I think it's the flies. When, no, when they get to the gnats, uh, the magicians can't produce that. And so the magicians, uh, they can't keep up with uh, Moses. So Moses' God is getting a little better than their God. So you get, you know, the, the scale is tipping a little bit. And then you come to the boils, and I love this. 
because the magicians can't appear when Pharaoh sends for them because they got boils on the bottoms of their feet. You're going to tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor? <laughs> but what you've got is the conflict, you see. And then the locusts and the darkness and the firstborn and the plundering of Egyptian, the crossing of the sea, the fire by day, uh, by night and the cloud by day that brings blindness to the Egyptians. The same cloud brings blindness to the Egyptians and light to the Hebrews. Now there's something there because judgment and salvation are inseparable. The water at Marah, you get the manna and the quail, you get the water out of the rock, you get the defeat of the Amalekites when they hold up Moses' hand and as long as his rod's up, they're winning. You get Mount Sinai with uh, the fire and the cloud and the pillar, all of that and the voice coming out of it, the gl glistening face of Moses. You get the cloud over the tent. You get the Levites uh, killing 3,000 people in their idolatry when they build a golden calf. You get uh, the, the presence of God. There was never such a succession of miracles, wonders, signs and wonders in all of human history comparable to what Caleb and Joshua had seen. And so you say they should have believed. And they should have. But the interesting thing is, thousands upon thousands of people who saw the same signs and wonders didn't believe. Signs and wonders don't produce faith. They don't produce trust. Let me put it this way. Signs and wonders may produce an incipient faith because you see an incipient faith in Pharaoh. Because at one point in this long succession of plagues, Pharaoh looks at Moses and says, will you call a halt to this? I've sinned. And will you pray for me? So he is acknowledging the reality of Moses' God. But when the chips are down, he's not going to trust him because it would have meant an incredible political revolution and he could have. You see, the priests ran, uh, ran Egypt pretty well. And so I suspect he counted the cost personally and said, I can't pay that. And so he died because of it. Now, but it just brings home the fact that it's not the signs and wonders. What is it that brings a person to faith? It's the personal relationship to meet him. And if you've never met him, you can believe about him, but you won't trust him. You'll never trust him until you've gotten close enough to him that you know that he's trustworthy. It's safe to trust him. Now, Caleb and Joshua had gotten close enough to him in that personal relationship so they felt that it was safe to trust him. Now, you know why? Uh, it's interesting. This fits, and I notice my time's up, but uh, this fits with what Paul was doing last night, and I appreciate it so much. I've looked through all of this to find out what was the key as to why these people who had been saved never got into the promised land. Because, you see, Exodus is the, is the, is the parable of salvation. 
These were these are the people of God. These are the chosen people. These are the elect people. These are the predestined people. But they never got into the promised land. Now, why didn't it? If you will look in Exodus 32, 9, 33, 3, and 5, 34, 9, Deuteronomy 9, 6, and 13, 10, 16, 31, 27, Judges 2, 17, and as a whole string keeps on going. You know what the scripture says is the reason they didn't get in? The Hebrew word is koshe oreth, which means their necks were tough, hard. Now we translate it stiff neck. Now, what's wrong with a stiff neck? You have trouble turning it. Do you know what got us into all the trouble we ever got into? Adam and Eve's necks turned. And they got their eye off God, and they got their eye on the tree. Now, the tree was a good tree, because God made it. Did you know the greatest enemy God has? It's not evil. It's good. Because nobody, no normal person, is first of all attracted by evil. He's attracted by the good. And it gets his attention. And God is forgotten. You see, here's a world, Joshua's day, who can live without God. Remarkably like us, isn't it? Remarkably like 20th, 20th century America as it heads into the 21st century. We've decided we can live without God. Because, you see, uh, same way the United Nations can't acknowledge God, it can acknowledge God's. You know, there's no tension in acknowledging God's because you choose yours and I choose mine. But once you say there is one God and one alone, you're in conflict and in tension with the rest of the world. But the problem is, there's only one God. <laughs> there is only one. And so, you've got you to face that and you've got to be willing to accept it. Now, uh, that's stiff neck. It's one thing for God to take me out of Egypt and it's another thing to get Egypt out of me. Because do you know where the Hebrews' heads were turned? Every time they had a problem, they said it was nice back in Egypt. When the water was bitter, it was so nice back in Egypt. When there uh, wasn't enough food, they thought, it was so nice back in Egypt. Now, uh, what does God want? He just wants to be the center of my attention. You know, I've been interested in how jealous women are. Dare I say this? I live with one, so I... Maybe, maybe Elsie's the only one in the world like this. But there's a jealous streak in Elsie. He wants me exclusive. Now, she's perfectly content for me to be polite to other ladies. But all the time I'm being polite, she's got one eye cocked on Remember, we've been living together for 55 years. I have great experience in this. It was interesting being in a pastorate when, you know, I dealt, a pastor deals with a lot of women. And I sensed in her 
I am absolutely convinced that that is a divine characteristic. And the same way Elsie wants me exclusively. And you understand what I mean. Friendship's another matter. But love, spousal love, marital love, that's another thing. She wants me exclusively. And I think God put it in her so I would know how God wants me. Because I think he's more jealous of me than she is of me. And I think he wants me more exclusively. It, it, it is an eternal, infinite jealousy. Now, why is he jealous? Now, uh, else is a human being. There's not a flaw in God and there's no selfishness in God. You know what he, why he's jealous for me and wants me exclusively? Because he knows that's the only safe place for me. <laughs> if he doesn't have me exclusively, I'm going to corrupt and destroy myself. So his jealousy is not a negative on God's character. It is an expression of his goodness and his love. He cares enough about me that he wants me exclusively. Now that's the reason I believe in Entire sanctification. <laughs> That's the reason I believe in that all to Jesus I surrender. Uh, there is no middle. We keep trying to build a middle ground, but the middle ground won't stand. The middle ground is shifting sand. You can stay there for a little while, but sooner or later you're going to move one way or the other. And... Uh, that's the, that's the character of the God that we work with. Now, Caleb and Joshua had seen that. We're not here today because of the... We're here today because of two men. And I can be a part of that same stream. And you can too. So we choose. 